Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive podcast into genre television. I'm Josh Wiggler, your host here on Series Regular. And for the next several weeks, we're all in on one thing and one thing only, Game of Thrones. Consider this your weekly window into the world of Westeros as we thoroughly explore each episode of the Emmy-winning epic's final season. Now, I really ought to amend that part in the intro where I say the next several weeks because... We won't be doing this for the next several weeks. Game of Thrones is rapidly racing toward the finish line. We're officially more than halfway home, thanks to the most recent installment, The Last of the Starks, an episode that started off on a somber note with a mass funeral, quickly took a nosedive into several horns of ale, wine, and sour goat's milk, led to a highly anticipated hookup between Jamie Lannister and Brienne of Tarth, which ended almost as soon as it began by the end of the episode. And speaking of the end of the episode, any sense of safety that may have lingered from the end of the long night is well and fully dead, as are two more loved ones from Daenerys Targaryen's side of the storyline, Rhaegal the Dragon and Masande of Noth, both of whom are killed thanks to the nefarious Cersei Lannister and her cronies. And yes, when I say crony, I am looking at you, Euron Greyjoy. You are the textbook definition of a crony, and indeed, you are the worst. Before we get into the specifics of The Last of the Starks, let's take a few minutes to shout out the person who brought the episode together. The final season's fourth episode hails from director David Nutter, the same man who directed the first two hours of the season, Winterfell and A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. These three final season episodes are Nutter's last remaining contributions to Game of Thrones, but they're far from his only contributions. Joining the series in 2012, Nutter's first outings in the world of Westeros are the back-to-back season two episodes, The Old Gods and the New, and A Man Without Honor, which brought you such classic out-of-context Game of Thrones moments as these. Taking your castle. What are you doing? I want these people executed. They want the same for you. Protect the king. Get back. Get back. Traitors. All their heads. Oh, you blind, bloody fool. You can't insult me. We've had vicious kings, and we've had idiot kings, but I don't know if we've ever been cursed with a vicious idiot for You can! I can, I am! They attacked me! They threw a cow pie at you, so you decide to kill them all! They're starving, you fool! All because of a war you started! You're talking to a king! And now I've struck a king! Eobus's ascendant should swing the sword! Coward! You don't give commands anymore, little lord. Hush thou, child. I'm off to see your father. Any last words, old man? God help you, Theon Greyjoy. Now you are truly lost. Nutter also sadly brought us this moment from the blue raspberry-mouthed warlock Pyat Pri. Her mother should be with her children. Where will you run to, Daenerys Stormborn? Your dragons wait for you in the House of the Undying. Come see them. 
look, nobody's perfect. With that said, Nutter delivered a near-perfect hour of Game of Thrones that aired on June 2nd, 2013. It's an episode that requires very little in the way of introduction. Really, a music cue ought to do. Nutter did not actually kill anyone in the making of The Reigns of Castamere, season 3's infamous penultimate episode that ended in The Red Wedding, first written and published in author George R.R. R. Martin's 2000 novel A Storm of Swords. But the director did oversee the mass killings of the vast majority of House Stark, including King in the North Rob Stark, his pregnant wife Talisa, and his mother Catelyn Stark. I will spare my mother and yours the gory details of having to listen to those deaths again. I'm sure their screams are still ringing in your ears all these years later anyway. In 2016, I spoke with actor Michael McElliton, who played Roose Bolton on Game of Thrones. At the time of his character's demise, the actor was still looking back on the Red Wedding as a highlight of his time on Thrones, thanks in no small part to the efforts of David Nutter as the director. Quote McElliton, We rehearsed it like a play which is very unusual. You normally direct in segments and all of these things. As actors, from the very start with the camera pointing up towards us, with me talking to Catelyn, smiling, and Walder Frey talking, right up until the death of Michelle, we ran the whole scene. It was all blocked out. That took a day to work out. That was to show the actors and to show the crew what was going to happen. It was a very rare thing to be done on film and a huge advantage. We knew where we were in the story and how it was going to unfold. Each day, David said, we're going to do it up to this point on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. It was a tremendous advantage. I bring all of that up because, to a person, from all the cast members I've interviewed throughout the final season of Game of Thrones thus far, all of them have universally praised Nutter's direction without any provocation from me. Gwendolyn Christie told me a heartwarming story about the scene from A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, in which Brienne of Tarth arises as Sir Brienne. According to her, Nutter called upon the surrounding crew to cheer for Christie, prompting the big smile you see on her face in the crowning moment of the episode. Night of the Seven Kingdoms. In my interview with Nutter, which is up on The Hollywood Reporter right now, the filmmakers stressed the importance of finding meaningful amounts of time to meet with the actors and rehearse the dialogue-heavy, character-rich scenes far in advance of stepping on set and shooting the scenes proper. Look, have there been missteps and clumsy moments in the final season? Absolutely, and we're going to talk about that later in this podcast. But have there been moments of utter joy and gutting darkness? Absolutely. And many of them are thanks to the same director who brought the Red Wedding to life. As we're about to plunge into some darkness ourselves, it feels only fitting that as Nutter's watch on Game of Thrones officially ends, we take some time of our own to raise a glass in his honor. Or a disposable coffee cup, if you prefer. Ah, yes. Coffee gate. Perhaps you've heard about the caffeinated cameo at the heart of the last of the Starks already. But if not, you will hear the tale now. The Last of the Starks begins with a funeral for those who died during the battle against the Night King, before quickly moving into a full-on rager within the halls of Winterfell. Highlights from the drink-up include Jon Snow's friends peer-pressuring him into a chugging contest. All of it. Come on. No, not in one go. Go on. I believe in you. We have to celebrate our victory. Vomiting is not celebrating. Yes, it is. <laughs> Tyrion, Jamie, and Brienne playing the Westeros equivalent of I Never. 
Your turn. Uh, you are an only child. I told you I was. You didn't. I did. I surmised. <laughs> Drink. Go again. Why does he get to go again? Because it's my game. And in a rather touching moment, Gendry of Flea Bottom publicly earning a new name and title. I think you should be Lord of Storm's End. I can't be, I'm a bastard. No. You are Lord Gendry Baratheon of Storm's End, the lawful son of Robert Baratheon, because that is what I have made you. To Lord Gendry Baratheon of Storm's End. It's exciting enough news that a few scenes later, Gendry forgets that he was once known as Gendry Waters and instead identifies himself as Gendry Rivers. Kind of awkward. But that continuity issue pales in comparison to another. As the episode aired, some eagle-eyed viewers spotted something that very much did not belong on Game of Thrones. A modern-day coffee cup parked right in front of Daenerys Targaryen. Drink. It's obviously a goof. Something that wasn't caught by the Thrones team before the final cut of the episode landed on HBO Go and HBO Proper and the other streaming services of choice. But honestly, from my perspective, it is a blessing from the Lord of Light himself. The coffee cup immediately stands out as the star of The Last of the Starks and indeed a highlight from the series overall, at least as far as its social media renown. As is often the case when these things happen, Twitter was immediately wide awake with the coffee takes, which can largely be summarized in a single word. Dracarys. Many viewers credited the coffee cup as belonging to Starbucks, which prompted the coffee chain itself to get in on the action. This following one-liner hails from Starbucks Coffee's official Twitter account. TBH, we're surprised she didn't order a dragon drink. TBH, of course, is short for to be honest. And a dragon drink, of course, is the Starbucks smoothie made from coconut milk, mango, and dragon fruit, and looks like the angry pink slime from Ghostbusters 2. You worthless piece of slime! Even HBO got in on the game. Hours after the first burst of jokes circulated far and wide, the powers that be behind Game of Thrones offered the company's first official remarks on the matter. This is their quote. News from Winterfell. The latte that appeared in the episode was a mistake. Daenerys had ordered an herbal tea. HBO took a few further actions regarding the coffee cup. One was to stop giving credit to Starbucks by properly identifying the coffee as belonging to Game of Thrones' craft services department. The next was to stop the coffee altogether. Look back now at The Last of the Starks, and you will see that the coffee is gone, dead, digitally erased from the official Game of Thrones canon. But of course, no amount of George Lucasing the archives can ever erase the coffee cup from our hearts. As they say in the Iron Islands, what is dead may never die, but rises again, hotter and stronger. And as they sing on series regular. In Winterfell, once the Night King was gone, Danny drank up a dark roast. A finely ground blend shipped in from Storm's End, mixed with poppy milk white as ghost. But she acted 
truly ordered a tea actually ordered a tea Danny did not order coffee she actually Okay, all right, sorry about that. After narrowly dodging a sword there, you have my solemn vow. No more singing from me on this podcast. Hopefully that's the low point of this week's series regular, though it may not be the low point considering The Last of the Starks, an episode that included several deadly twists, some of which have landed better than others. By nature, I'm a positive person, and I'd like to stay that way, so I'm going to start off with a few choice scenes that I really, really enjoyed in this episode. Up first, the funeral scene, which included Daenerys' final words to Jorah Mormont, though we never got to hear them. Her whisper wisps away in the wind, never to be heard from again, leaving the exact sentiments to our imaginations, Jack Bauer and Nina Meyer style. Much more clear, Jon Snow's final words on the White Walker War, which leads to this rousing speech. We're here to say goodbye to our brothers and sisters, to our fathers and mothers, to our friends, our fellow men and women who set aside their differences to fight together and die together so that others might live. Everyone in this world owes them a debt that can never be repaid. It is our duty and our honor to keep them alive in memory for those who come after us and those who come after them. For as long as men draw breath, they were the shields that guarded the realms of men. And we shall never see their light again. The speech leads to copious amounts of drinking, as outlined previously, and the copious amounts of drinking lead to Jamie and Brienne of Tarth meeting each other once again beside a fireplace. Why do you keep it warm enough in here? It's the first thing I learned when I came to the North. Keep your fire going. Every time you leave the room, put more wood on. That's very diligent, very responsible. Piss off. It always makes me happy to see Brienne happy. It also always makes me happy to see the Starks in a scene together, as was the case in the appropriately titled Last of the Starks, as Jon, Arya, Sansa, and Bran meet together in the Godswood for one of my very favorite scenes of the season. You understand we'd all be dead if not for her. We'd be corpses marching down to King's Landing. Arya's the one that killed the Night King. Her men gave their lives defending Winterfell. And we will never forget them. That doesn't mean that I want to kneel to someone. I swore myself and the North to her cause. I respect that. You respect it. We needed her. We needed her army. Her dragons. You did the right thing. And we're doing the right thing telling you we don't trust your queen. You don't know her yet. I'll never know her. She's not one of us. If you only trust the people you grew up with, you won't make many allies. That's all right. I don't need many allies. Are you? We're family. The four of us. The last of the Starks. I've never been a Stark. 
Of course, this leads John to telling the truth about his real parents, but only after he makes his siblings promise to keep the secret to themselves. And even then, he can't bring himself to say the words. I swear it. I swear it. I swear it. Tell them. And scene. So awkward. Love it. I also love that it results in Sansa immediately telling the secret to Tyrion. And what's more, it results in Arya leaving Winterfell. Another development I'm very intrigued by, if only because of who she's traveling down south with. You're heading to King's Landing? Some unfinished business. Me too. I don't plan on coming back. Neither do I. Gonna leave me to die again if I get hurt? Probably. <laughs> Another person leaving Winterfell, Jon Snow, who plans to march south with the northern forces in support of his queen, Daenerys. Before he leaves, Jon says goodbye to some friends, Sam, Gilly, their maybe baby John, and Tormund Giantsbane, who has decided to return to his home beyond the wall, all but making sure he survives the remainder of Game of Thrones. It's about time somebody got a happy-ish ending. I wish I was going with you. This is farewell, then. You never know. You've got the North in you. The real North. Here's one thing that's not so cool. John ghosting ghost. But frankly, the direwolf is better off without him. It's just a shame the Thrones team could never figure out what to do with ghost. And an even greater shame that John couldn't even be bothered to scratch the good boy behind his one good ear on his way out the door. Frankly disgusting and fully disqualifying for John's shot at the Iron Throne. And frankly, that's as good a transition as any into getting to some of the stuff I didn't love from this episode. The goodbye from the North, it's frankly right around where the good stuff ends for me in The Last of the Starks. Sure, the rest of the episode is filled with some massive surprises that come out of nowhere, and that's always fun. Not so fun for Rhaegal the Dragon, though, who's shot out of the sky by Euron Greyjoy and his anti-dragon scorpion missiles. Now, as I mentioned before, Euron is the worst. And what's worse is that he really doesn't have to be. If you indulge a little bit of book nerdery for a moment, the Euron Greyjoy of the TV series truly pales when compared to the Euron Greyjoy of A Song of Ice and Fire. He's a deadly pirate there who reeks of death and not in the Theon sense. Euron in the books is very likely to roll up his sleeves and get his hands on one or more of Danny's dragons, not unlike how the Night King killed Viserion in season seven and turned him into his undead steed. Again, there's no Night King in George R.R. Martin's books outside of a legend that's completely unrelated to the White Walker threat as far as we can tell so far. There are a lot of compelling takes in the Ice and Fire fandom suggesting that the Night King's role in Game of Thrones is similar to what Martin has planned for Euron, essentially making him an elemental force of destruction who wants to unleash death upon the world and conquer whatever's left, capturing dragons and using them for his own purposes. Although in the case of the books, Euron's going to do that with a magic horn called Dragonbinder, and not with the magic ability to raise the dead. Instead, for Game of Thrones' version of Euron, this is who we get. Listen, if you have any advice at all, I would love to hear it. When we have an hour or two to speak as brothers. Advice? 
Does she like it gentle or rough? The finger in the bum. Not now. We'll talk later. Euron isn't the only reason why some Thrones viewers are having some trouble getting fired up for the final season. But I'd argue that he's part of the problem, a big part of the problem. Right now, we're left without compelling villains to root against. Lena Headey knows how to chew the scenery as Cersei Lannister. She always has. What's also fantastic is we're getting into Clegane Bowl territory very soon. The Mountain versus the Hound, that's happening. But we're a long way away from the days of the truly disgusting likes of Joffrey, Ramsay Bolton, even Littlefinger. Horrible people, obviously, all of them, but magnetic to watch. Euron, on the other hand... This is the only thing I've ever seen that terrifies me. Not so much. What's more, Game of Thrones is setting us up for another possible endgame antagonist in the form of someone who many have considered a protagonist, Daenerys Targaryen. Admittedly, she's lost a lot across the seasons, especially recently. She's down two dragons, one of whom died twice thanks to his tenure with the Night King. Half of her army has been destroyed, all while fighting a battle she barely wanted to get involved in. The people in the North are not only ungrateful for Danny's efforts in helping defeat the White Walkers, she's also persona non grata among the Starks themselves. Even one of her most trusted advisors is secretly plotting against her. A Targaryen father and a Stark mother. John's the one man alive who might actually be able to keep the North in the Seven Kingdoms. How many kings and queens have you served? Five, six, I've lost count. You've always known my reasons. At a certain point, you choose a person you believe in, and you fight for that person. Even if you know it's a mistake. Add to all of this the twin losses of Jorah Mormont and Missandei, the first of whom dies valiantly in battle, but the second of whom is brutally butchered as an act of intimidation. The last of the Starks ends with Daenerys' fury fully apparent on her face, and it's no wonder why, given all the damage she sustained in the past several episodes. But it just feels like a little bit too much too fast, doesn't it? Especially if we're meant to buy that Danny is now willing to wage war on the Red Keep, where so many innocent civilians in King's Landing are currently hiding. Cersei needs to be destroyed. But if we attack King's Landing with Drogon and the Unsullied and the Dothraki, Tens of thousands of innocents will die. That is why Cersei is bringing them into the Red Keep. These are the people you came here to protect. I beg you, Your Grace, do not destroy the city you came to save. Do not become what you have always struggled to defeat. Do you believe we're here for a reason, Lord Varys? I'm here to free the world from tyrants. That is my destiny. And I will serve it, no matter the cost. Here's the thing, if I can get candid for a minute. I like a lot of what's happening on Game of Thrones right now in terms of the ideas. The unexpectedly early departure of the Night King and the White Walkers, I am absolutely fine with that in principle. It's a sign that the combined forces of humanity can conquer the impossible, if only they can truly work together and put their differences away. The fact that the remainder of Game of Thrones will test the final part of that equation— can we as a species put our differences aside? And can we keep doing good work together? It's not just a fascinating question to me, but it's a crucial question given where we are in our own human history. But on the other hand, Game of Thrones has been rushing us to these points for a variety of failures in the writing, but the biggest offense being the decision to close the series down with seven episodes in season seven and six episodes in season eight. 
George R.R. Martin set out to create a huge world filled with huge ideas that we as humans will find deeply resonant. And while the story he's telling has grown so big that he's having a little trouble finishing it, I just wish there was a happier balance between the length of his tale and the length of Benioff and Weiss's story. Given that the first Game of Thrones successor show pilot is gearing up for production this summer, HBO clearly would have welcomed more stories on Game of Thrones proper. It's a shame that didn't happen. Because while the slimmer episode order is leaving us with a lot of spectacle to enjoy, the spectacle that we can see, mind you, the spectacle means nothing without the big ideas and the small character interactions that lead the way for those big ideas. Daenerys Targaryen's tragic trajectory isn't exactly coming out of nowhere. It's something that I can absolutely buy, but it is flying low at an alarmingly fast rate. And when I feel like we look back on how Game of Thrones ended a few years from now, many of the issues this final season seems to be suffering from is going to boil down to this dragon of a show not being able to fully spread its wings and breathe the way that it needs to breathe. Pros and cons aside, Here's what really matters. What's coming next? There are two more episodes left on Game of Thrones, and a whole lot's going to go down in the next episode, the penultimate round of the series. Once again directed by the Long Night Helmer Miguel Sapochnik, the trailer for the episode shows a lot of scenes that take place during the daytime, so the brightness issue should not be a problem. Before we close out the podcast, let me leave you with three specific predictions for what I think will happen next week. Prediction number one, the Clegane Bowl. That is happening. That's a guarantee. The Hound and Arya are on their way to King's Landing, and neither of them are planning on coming back to Winterfell. In Season 7's finale, the Hound made it clear that he would one day come back to claim his big undead brother's head, finishing the job the Red Viper failed to do. What? What, are you expecting a sound drop? That's not happening. Not, not this week. But consider this your one-week warning that some form of Red Viper head smushing is probably going to happen next time. My money's on the Hound defeating his brother. Heading into the season, I predicted that Sander Clegane would live through the fight and continue on in service of House Stark. I'm going to stick with that prediction, even if I feel a little more nervous about it a few days out from the battle than I did a few weeks ago. Here's my second prediction. Arya Stark. She's coming to King's Landing to kill Cersei Lannister. She's going to try... And I really am sorry to say that I think that she's going to fail spectacularly. Who am I to bet against the woman who killed the Night King? But my thinking is Game of Thrones put Arya in a position to take out the scariest villain on the board just to heighten our expectations ahead of her fall against Cersei. I've written about why I think Arya is going to die before. Essentially that it's the biggest gut punch possible left. Everybody loves Arya, and her stock has never been higher. But if you want to see a little bit more about my preseason prediction, seek out my final path article on Arya. It's over at thr.com slash Game of Thrones if you want to see the beat-by-beat details. Third and final prediction for this podcast. Jamie Lannister, much like Arya, is also going to King's Landing to try and kill Cersei Lannister. And he's going to succeed. The Kingslayer shall become the Queenslayer. The way he speaks to Brienne about his reasons for why he's heading back to King's Landing leaves some wiggle room for interpretation. You think I'm a good man? I pushed a boy out a tower window, crippled him for life. For Cersei. I strangled my cousin with my own hands just to get back to Cersei. I would have murdered every man woman and child in River Run for Cersei. 
She's hateful. And so am I. It might not be his current intention, but I do believe that Jamie's going to reach King's Landing and repeat his own history by returning to King's Landing, entering the city as a friend, only to betray the Standing Queen, a move straight out of the playbook of his own late father, Tywin Lannister, who long ago pulled a similar move against the Mad King, Aerys Targaryen. Jamie doing the same thing, and Cersei falling for the same trick, would be a brutal but fitting series of final notes as for how their arcs relate back to dear old dad. I've got plenty of other predictions about what's going to happen in the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones, just not as much to lay them all out here on the podcast. Check out THR.com slash Game of Thrones for a full list of who I expect will die and why in the episode ahead. Also, a bunch of interviews on THR.com slash Game of Thrones right now, including a conversation with David Nutter, the director who was responsible for The Last of the Starks. Also, Gwendolyn Christie, who was fantastic as Brienne of Tarth this week. And also Christopher Heavju, who played Tormund Giantsbane for the past several seasons and who I desperately hope we will never see again on Game of Thrones outside of a very happily ever after epilogue sequence in the series finale. For now, I have to leave you with a few parting words. First, Dracaris. Second, as always, thank you for listening to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive genre TV podcast. Subscribe to the show on your various podcast platforms. Email your questions and suggestions to seriesregular at thr.com or tweet them to me at Round Howard. We'll be back next week to pick through the fallout of the big battle for the Iron Throne and survey the damage leading up to the series finale, airing May 19th.